and welcome to these audio didactic recordings from Project Echo, Westwick PHN Hub. All right, we'll get underway while everyone's tuning into the audio. Welcome to Project Echo. This is the Westwick PHN Hub COVID-19 Echo Network, Series 8, Session 3. It's Thursday, the 10th of February, 2022. Welcome back. This session's titled COVID-19 and Kids, Back to School, Vaccines and Clinical Issues, Part 1. So I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians of the lands and waterways from which we're all zooming in from today. We recognise their diversity, resilience and ongoing place that First Nations peoples hold in our community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and commit to working together in the spirit of mutual understanding, respect and reconciliation. And we support self-determination for First Nations peoples and organisations and we'll work together on closing the gap. So we've run three or four paediatric series over the last two years, focusing on COVID care, back kind of back in 2020, uh, return to school risk mitigation. I think we've done quite a few of those after lockdowns. Um, we've looked at um, the measures around back to school. We've looked at vaccinations and looking back while the virus has mutated and changed in its virulence and transmissibility, so too has our understanding of these dynamics and the tools that we have used and been able to use to risk mitigate. We'll kick off, we'll kick off this two-part paediatric mini-series today with discussion about common presentations such as questions about testing and quarantine and the paediatric vaccine rollout. We'll seek to understand where the evidence sits in regards to long COVID in kids and um, perhaps also pick up on that theme next week. Um, we'll look at the vaccine versus the virus and uh, those um, kind of complications or side effects and in whom do we need to pay special attention due to immunocompromise. In our next session, we'll move on to slightly trickier presentations such as PIMS-TS. So if you do have a case, we'd love to hear from you. Um, if you've seen anyone, and I know it is quite rare, but even anyone that's presented four weeks post with some abdo pain or you've thought, oh, is this something kind of scary or it might turn out not to be, um, it would just be really great to kind of hear a grounded um, scenario. Um, so what are the common paediatric issues arising up at this stage of the pandemic and what uh, are the information or knowledge frameworks that you need to address these issues in your clinic setting? We'd love to kind of find out a bit about that this morning. So let's get on with it. I'm Bianca Forrest, GP. I'll be facilitating today's meeting with the ECHO team, Gemma and Fee. Um, and thanks to Zach, Katrina and Jade for their offline work. Uh, thank, welcome to all the participants um, joining us from Westwick regions and from people uh, observing and joining in from outside of the Westwick, welcome. Uh, thanks for introducing yourself in the chat and let us know where you're Zooming in from and uh, share anything you'd like to in the chat. Uh, we'll keep it pretty active this morning. Welcome to our panel this morning. So uh, we've um, deliberately kept the agenda nice and simple. We have Kate Graham uh, walking us through any changing guidelines and health pathways. And we've got a new segment called Rats and Stats, reflecting some of the clinical questions and issues and vignettes sent in to us. Thank you to everyone who sent in, um, you know, information, uh, questions and vignettes. It's just great and really helpful. So our, our echo is off and rolling with those vignettes um, telling us what, the, what, what you need to puzzle this morning. So Kate's going to do a Rats and Stats segment. And we welcome back Jane Standish, um, paediatrician from Bowen Health MCRI and RCH. This morning, it is a bit of a bits and bobs session. It's going to be a little bit of us, Jane, to talk about PEDS and the vaccine, the myo and pericarditis, early boosters, immunocompromised. So there's some, you know, just scooping up some bits and pieces and um, um, we'll move into some of those trickier inflammatory stuff like uh, um, PIMS and long COVID and where we're up to with the evidence next week. Um, and then Linda Govan, uh, we've got some vignettes, we've got some questions. So we've got lots to kind of fill in all of those bits in between our um, didactics. And then we've got Linda Govan, Regional Senior Manager of Westwick PHN, uh, uh, scooping it up at the end, letting us know how the PHN can support the work that you are doing. 
Okay, so um, with that, I think that's it for me. I think I just have to mention, of course, we love your cameras on. Uh, if you do want to protect your privacy, however, we do release the video and the audio so you can manage your privacy by having your camera off, but um, we love to see your cameras on if you're comfortable with that. Uh, over to you, Kate, thanks. Good morning, everyone. Um, look, I think there's probably not a great deal to update in terms of changes to guidelines that we didn't flag from last week. All the pandemic orders have been updated now. And I think probably the major changes that we did flag last week were the change in need to sort of test or quarantine following um, being a positive case. Whereas previously it was at 30 days post-diagnosis, now it's 30 days following release from isolation. So you get an extra week um, of not having to do rat tests, not having to become a contact again if you've been a case. So that's all positive for people who may have been a, um, a case and may be continually exposed at this time of year, particularly in school kind of setups. So I think um, the other set of things were one of the things that was flagged in um, aged care was the requirement to only work at one site. If there is an outbreak, that's now been removed from the pandemic orders. Um, upcoming things, obviously, on the 12th um, is the mandated booster date for lots of industries. So that's something to sort of keep in mind as well. Um, the case and contact management guidelines um, have been updated and they're sitting underneath the pandemic orders for um, testing and quarantine um, and case management in there. So that's where you can find them as well. I'll pop a link in the chat a bit later. Well, that almost concludes our didactic content for this morning. We won't bring you the recording of the case discussion, but come along and join the discussion next week. Thanks. So sort of started talking, but um, most of you know I'm a paediatrician. I work at um, Geelong um, and RCH and I'm the medical lead for the paediatric arm of the Barwon Vixis service. Um, I did realise I forgot to add the Vixis um, email to this, so I'll pop it in the chat when I finish talking as well. Um, just wanted to reflect a little bit on and why we're vaccinating the younger children when um, all of the messaging has been around that it's a fairly mild illness in most children in that context. Um, so I think we're in a good position to get as much protection as we can. Um, and we've got good data that's come through that the vaccine is safe and effective um, and that the benefits for reducing the risk of severe disease needing hospitalisation, um, so not, not eliminating the infection, but, but the severe infection, um, as well as reducing the risk of some of the associated complications like post-COVID inflammatory disorders, um, and the indirect benefits to um, protection of household members and other vulnerable contacts, minimising the interruption to going to school, parents going to work, attending sporting activities and all of those things that have been very interrupted in the last two years. Um, the wait, the, the extra few months that we had at the end of last year where um, we didn't um, license the vaccine or, or roll it out in Australia, where it was being rolled out in North America gave us a massive amount of um, safety data as it was um, so this was to early to mid-December, I think almost 9 million doses of COVID vaccine had been given 
to children um, in the 5 to 11 age group in the US. And so huge amounts of safety data collected on that, um, which really reinforced that it's um, a very safe and effective vaccine, um, showing that the most common side effect was pain in the arm where the vaccine was administered um, and some instances of fatigue and headache and fever, but those systemic features not as common as what we've seen reported in adults. Um, and the serious um, side effects or adverse events following the vaccine in this age group were very few and far between. So really reassuring safety data on lots of numbers. And that's similar to what was seen, has been seen so far in the Australian tracking data, that very similar pattern of the more mild side effects. The myocarditis data for this age group is also, post-vaccine is also really reassuring. So this um, table summarises the risk per million doses and you can see that that um, that 16 to 17 year old boys is really where the um, highest risk rate is at 70 per million cases um, but in the 5 to 11 age group really small numbers have increased so it has been seen I think there's been there were 12 cases reported to this mid-December reporting um, point out of all of those doses in the US um, and slight male predominance more after dose two um, and most of them had fully recovered by the January report that the CDC put out so um, and none of them were in hospital so really um, small numbers fairly mild spectrum of disease reassuring on that cardiac um, inflammatory complication front um, and in comparison to the to the risk of cardiac inflammation with COVID infection. So I've seen reported sort of that compared with vaccine that it's six to seven times the rate of um, risk of, of myocarditis, pericarditis after infection compared with after vaccine. Um, and there's been a, a, just a, a paper of local data in preprint in the last week when I was having a look yesterday um, that shown the risk of um, cardiac inflammation and I think this is all age groups not just kids but was um, 15 times the incidence risk ratio um, that I get that as far as I could tell from the reading was compared with baseline risk not compared with vaccine so it wouldn't be quite as big a difference but certainly um, one of the most com com one of the more common um, reasons for hospitalization following COVID um, that was captured in that local data as well so bigger risk from infection than from the vaccine is the message. Um, and the other, um, the other really reassuring um, and helpful piece of information, I think, um, is the protection against the post-COVID inflammatory conditions. So um, this was last year, so would have been mostly with Delta um, and mostly in the teenagers rather than the younger children, but but a 90% reduction um, in the risk of um, MIS-C, which is also called PIMS-TS. One came out of the UK, one came out of the US, and we tend to use a bit of a mix in Australia. Um, and so, Jade, sorry, PIMS-TS stands for? Um, Paediatric Inflammatory Multisystem Disorder Temporally Associated with COVID. Right, I prefer PIMS, yes, thanks, but it's good to know the acronym. <laughs> I think that's right. Um, 
yeah, neither of them really roll off the tongue. Um, but uh, yes, so good protection from the vaccine um, against the inflammatory co um, complications post-COVID as well, which is great. Um, a few practical considerations um, and reflection on where we're at with the TAGI recommendations at present and I'm happy if there are questions that come up on this sort of stuff as well, or if there's questions that you're dealing with in practice. Um, but we're doing the two-dose primary course of the Pfizer paediatric formulation. Um, it's not recommended to use the adult formulation at a smaller volume um, due to risk of error. Uh, eight week interval, um, and that's been designed around um, the, a time frame that is, we think will optimize immune response with that slightly longer um, interval. So um, you should get a good antibody boost with that longer interval, which is um, across different vaccines that we use that approach. Um, and also thought to potentially reduce the risk of some of those side effects like pericarditis, myocarditis with the longer interval, um, but can be shortened to um, a minimum of three weeks. And that's in the context of whilst there's high circulating volumes medical risk factors for severe COVID infection um, and a three-dose primary course similar to um, what you've gone through with adults for three-dose primary course with the third dose two to six months after the second dose in those children who have severe immunocompromise. Um, those tables just on the next slide, uh, they're small, but you'll be familiar with them. It's the same ATAGI table that you would have seen for adults as well. So I haven't gone into that in detail, um, but probably the only one to note there is that there is a bit of a catch-all under underlying conditions in the paediatric population, which is children with complex chronic disease. Um, so if, you, if you've got a kid with a bit going on, it's very reasonable to try to um, reduce their risk of hospitalization. Um, although we haven't been seeing a lot of acute severe infections or um, coming through, which I can talk to a bit more next week. Um, that's almost it from me, but the other question that has been coming up a bit for us is vaccination after COVID infection. Um, and the in this age group, um, and particularly given we're in the midst of vaccinating at the same time as um, lots of infections are going on, that um, the current ATAGI guidance is still that you can immunise as soon as there is clinical recovery. Um, there's also been discussion and, and advice about um, waiting about four weeks post-infection for vaccination. And um, there's, not, there's not a one right approach. So on a practical front, you've got a child who's got an immunisation booking and they're well and they've recovered, it's fine to give it whatever the time frame. Um, if they're thinking about it and planning, then you could say four weeks might be a sort of a good optimal time having got that mucosal immunity from infection um, and protection over those four weeks and then immunise as that um, period comes to a close. Um, and similar to adults, there is the, um, you know, range of, you can go out to several months, but that's not necessarily recommended um, post-infection before vaccinating. Um, the other thing that's coming up is, um, is um, which again, I'll probably touch on a little bit more next week, but because of this overlap with 
infections and vaccination at the moment. You're seeing some inflammatory type presentations that are proximate to vaccine timing, but we haven't seen any proven um, inflammatory conditions post-vaccine. There hasn't been a MIS-V um, condition emerge, um, and mostly those kids have had um, infection, prior infection proven on serology, even if they haven't had a um, known clinical infection. Um, so, I was going to a couple of questions yeah, you're coming up. up. Do you want me to have yeah. a look at well, them? Well, actually, I before we so. go to these, because, well, actually, let's look at the pre-submitted question. So I'm hoping that Jane's answered your question, what is the advice for a paediatric rate of myocarditis, pericarditis compared to adults? Um, and is that for, and I'm just clarifying actually with the person that submitted that, I'm guessing that's for COVID. So um, I know your, your graphs looked at the vaccine, but are we thinking, yeah, va let's go vaccine, then let's go COVID if you've got that data. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have figures for, for COVID specifically, but I think vanishingly rare really in the young kids. Um, not so, so not vanishing, almost vanishingly rare post-vaccine and slightly more post-infection, um, but hard, I don't have a specific figure at my fingertips for post-infection for the paediatric age group specifically. Um, sorry. Um, no, that's okay. But, but compared with adults, so what we're seeing is that the peak in, in, in post-infectious complications it is similar to, so it's the young adults that are seeing it. It's similar to the post-vaccine. It's the young adults that are most getting the post-infectious complications as well. And it's not been a common um, common issue in the children either in the literature or in what we're seeing in the hospitals. Mm, so when we think about that paediatric immuno multi-system temporally associated with COVID, um, what, what age are we up to with when we use that paediatric classification? So you're saying it's really key, what we'd think about is peds, kids, um, but actually into young adults might be presenting with a PIMS-TS type thing? Ah, uh, yes. So so there is, there's actually been adults, um, particularly through the US, described with, with post-COVID um, inflammatory disorders as well. Um, general inflammation, not specifically the perimyocarditis, although that can come along with as part of that picture. Um, so there has been sort of, so they're, they're calling it Miss A, so the multisystem inflammatory. Oh, um, hence they've taken the pee off. Okay, yeah. well, look, we're going to do more on that next week. But guys, yeah. if you've got anything that looks a bit like a, that right up, we're, I'm, we're calling it right up to, you know, young adults as well, do send us a case. Um, I'm going to, there's, there's some questions in the chat. So we need to make sure we make time for a quick rapid fire answer of questions in the chat. Um, I'm going to put this case vignette. So thank you to the person that submitted this, Miss AF49, who has CF, um, is immunocompromised and just received a fourth dose of the COVID vaccine. Um, there's a risk because husband's paramedic. So he's got occupational exposure potentially. Son's 15, turning 16 in July, Jane. So only eligible for a booster in July. But um, Mrs. AF is concerned that son will bring COVID home from school now it's restarted and asked if you'd boost him at uh, 15. She understands the risk of myocarditis, pericarditis, but her son didn't have any issues with the first dose. What are the implications of giving him a booster at 15? So out, outside of guidelines, um, but in the context of this uh, risk and needing to shield someone um, for the patient and, and for the doctor. Um, so your yeah. advice is a big cis person. 
Yeah, so I think sort of taking it in a couple of parts, I think on the clinical front first, um, the in terms of how much would a booster change the risk for this individual, but I think um, we know that for Omicron, a, a boost, um, we do see uh, an overall um, slight increase, but it's not it's not completely stopping people from getting Omicron and, and some of the data coming out from overseas settings um, indicates that it's not a great difference in um, changing household transmission, particularly for younger um, people post-booster. And remembering that he um, probably would have had his primary course in the second half of last year, so it might not be too long post his um, primary course of the first two doses. Um, so my take would be we don't, um, we're, we're still looking and gathering that sort of safety information and risk benefit balance for the younger teens in, um, in the role of the booster. We're not sure that it will offer a significantly greater um, protection for the household contacts. So my take would be I probably wouldn't boost him at this point in time, um, but would reinforce all of the other good things that are already in place to, um, to protect the vulnerable individual in the household and um, you know early isolation, all of those sorts of things on top of the other um, things. So it, that, that's probably where I would sit if the family were talking to me. Um, mm -hmm. Having said that, and of course, there's not a magic that, you know, there's nothing magic that happens at 16 on your 16th <laughs> birthday that changes um, between 15 and 16. And, um, you know, I don't think it's a black and white situation. Um, and in terms of prescribing and out of, um, you, you, it would be a case of making a decision to give an off licence um, Give, give the vaccine out of where it's currently licensed to give, um, which is something that we do in different situations. I think it would be ultimately come down to the individual, but my advice probably wouldn't be to go down that path at this point. Mm. So the vaccine's not necessarily doing what they want it to be doing because Omicron's escaping anyway. So it's not protecting transmission. It's really about protecting him as an individual, in which case we still don't know if it does protect him. And you deal with maternal anxiety all the time, I'm sure, Jane. Um, what about the ongoing anxiety for mum? And they potentially might choose not to send him to school until he has a booster. What's your advice to this mum if this is what's confronting you? Yeah, I think... Um... I think that you have to you have to come back on the fact that um, there's nothing that we can do at the moment that'll be absolute protection, but that you know that that the young person has already has some ongoing protection from their two doses of vaccine, and then all of the non-vaccine related mitigation measures that'll really come into play for them with um, masks and isolation if there's any sign of symptoms or or all of those sorts of things. Okay, um, so we are probably at time, but I am recognising that there's a couple, couple of questions in the yep. chat. Are Pretty you, quick I've ones. got, yeah, have fine. there been any deaths from myocarditis, pericarditis, post-MRA vaccinating in Australia, or even was there any in that American series? Um, no, no deaths in that series in, um, in the 5 to 11 age group and not none in Australia, no. Great. Do we know um, peri-myo are recorded in Australia? So is it part of the Ausvac safety because it's not included as a reaction in the post-vac surveys? Yeah. So again, for, for Victoria, the safety reporting system, which I think someone has commented in there, 
um, to capture um, that. Um, it, and that's there are different systems in different states, but they are all talking to each other on this one. Okay, great. And I think that's so, yep. Yeah, okay. And what about children with Down syndrome? RCH says there are increased risks, but it wasn't on that table. Yeah. And is it only for those children with cardiac abnormalities? Yeah, sorry, no. Um, so definitely uh, do fall into the increased risk category in ADA and not just for those with the um, cardiac abnormalities. And I think that in my um, pasting of the table on a small fraction, it cut out some of the, this includes, but um, the complex chronic disease um, would come in Catch under all. that for, for, um, for children for increased risk for sure. Yep, great. Thanks, Jane. Thank and, you and so much. Developmental oh. disorders as well. Um, autism. autism. Yep. Yep. Okay, thanks, Jane. Well, um, I look forward to next week's um, bit on PIMS TS. It might just be slightly academic for us. Maybe we're not seeing it in practice, but I'm guessing that there's maybe some relationship between PIMS TS, long COVID. You know, we can kind of unpack some of those post in um, infectious inflammatory stuff. So I think it's going to get your academic neurons going, even if you're not seeing it in practice, guys. So thank you. We look forward to that. Um, so we'll see you next week. Thanks, Jane. And um, Linda, over to you. Ah, thanks. Thanks, Bianca. Good morning, everyone. Uh, just starting with COVID-19 oral treatments in aged care, Legemrio, one of the new antiviral treatments for COVID-19 indicated for adults with mild to moderate disease at risk of progressing to severe disease will be made available in all residential aged care facilities in Australia. Um, the Australian government will be deploying Legevrio initially through the national, national medical stockpile to all of our um, aged care facilities, but facilities with an outbreak will be prioritised for earliest distribution. At this stage, further details on availability and other logistical matters are still being developed by the Commonwealth and state, but we'll provide you with updates as they become available. I'd encourage you to watch the webinar. The link is there on the slide. Um, it was done on Monday. Professor Michael Kidd um, presented that. Um, lots of information there, but still lots of questions. I would also encourage you to have a look at the resources in the list below. Um, there's a kind of fact sheet in there as well. We did send this information out yesterday in our COVID update, but um, I encourage you to particularly watch the webinar for extra information. So next slide, thanks. Uh, just quickly in regards to vaccinations, um, Novavax, it's an open-ended EOI. So if you're interested, um, do just send us a, a, a request via our COVID inquiry email and we'll action that with the Commonwealth. We've had, I think it's um, 24 or 25 clinics across the entire West Vic region so far that will be onboarded. The first slot start, there's two tranches. The first start on the 21st of Feb, the next on the 28th. So that's exciting. Um, and just in regards to managing stock, particularly for the 12 plus Pfizer doses, really, again, we're seeing there's more, more stock available than, than is required. So we're being contacted for um, support to place it elsewhere. There's not a, not a lot of options available at the moment. Um, again, it's a, trying to transfer to other practices, um, perhaps for practices not to order as regularly. And, um, the VOC is also available to transfer to support transfer of stock. I just popped the table in there, which are the questions that the VOC want when um, gathering information about whether they can actually take the stock. So that's um, that's really where we're at with those options at the moment. Next slide, thanks, Gemma. Um, this table um, has the air data for the last seven days from the 2nd to the 9th of February for our 5 to 11 population. So you can see some improvement, improvements across all of our LGAs um, with the um, 
a total percentage across our region at 54.3%, which is really good. There are a couple of areas below 50, but in general, all of the rates are um, increasing um, across the week, and which just reflects such great work by our vaccine providers. Um, just as an example, I'll just call out West Wimmera, which you can see improved from 29 to 57% in the week. So really impressive work and just again, a really good example of um, yeah, how hard everybody's working out there. Um, we also advised the uh, 10 clinics that were um, successful in our recent EOI for vulnerable populations. So they'll be doing a range of activities, which includes additional clinics um, in, in hours and after hours, extra staff and promotion. We'll, we'll see some expansion of some culturally appropriate services and purchase of resources as well. So that's a really good initiative. I'm really pleased to see that um, happening. And just finally, if you've got any questions COVID related, do reach out to our COVID response team via our COVID inquiry email. We are there and available to support you and hopefully answer your questions or send you in the right direction. And if you're not subscribed to our weekly COVID-19 update newsletter, I just encourage you to do that. And um, yeah, pop, pop your email in the chat if you'd like to subscribe to that. I think that's it. Thanks, Bianca. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Linda. Thanks all. Um, you can catch up on um, previous content. Um, as Gemma's popped up there, there's the email in the chat for COVID inquiry. So we just trying to think about all those ways we can continue to con um, communicate um, outside of ECHO. Thanks for completing the survey. Thanks to everyone who sent through questions and vignettes. Um, if you want to do it quickly, you can actually jump on the survey now and, you know, just write a vignette of what's come up for you. If something came up um, and prompted you during the session, you can just let us know it through the survey if you like. Um, and uh, we can include that in future sessions. So we're going to do paediatrics again next week. We'd love a case uh, or send us any other cases about what's coming in um, you know, across your desk, uh, you know, we can deal with that as well. In Kate Graham's session, we can do vignettes as well. Um, and then in the following week, we'll, we'll move on to the oral therapy. So uh, there's lots of resources apparently out there. And as Linda mentioned, there's other webinars you can go to hear about oral therapies because it feels like it's kind of feeling urgent. Um, but please go and find those other resources that we've mentioned. And of course, we'll have, um, we'll have Rachel Cowan with you in two weeks time to look at the old therapies so um take care out there um and uh we'll we'll catch up with you next week thanks all and lots thanks for listening and come along and join the discussion next week google westfic phn project echo covid19 pandemic response network and you'll find a way to register by registering we'll send you reminders each week and we'll let you know what's coming up in the sessions and you'll also receive our resource pack that includes notes podcasts webinars slide decks and any resources mentioned in the discussion thanks for listening